0: Jesus Christ's name, we pray, Amen. Amen. First Corinthians, chapter fifteen. We are starting in verse twenty-nine this morning. Uh, leading up to this point in this section of First Corinthians, Paul has been admonishing the local church in Corinth toward unity. There is a great deal of division here in the church. Uh, I, you know, you can, you can you can't look at any human group and find any sort of division, can you? Um, No. Yes, you can, right? Uh, Everywhere you look, there is division. There's division in the nation. Uh, There is division in churches. There is division in the world. It is marked by dissatisfaction and war and abuse. And everyone seems to want to point their fingers at someone else uh, rather than practice a little introspection in today's world. And this text gets at the heart of that, how Paul's argument so far uh, has, has gotten at that point again. and In this section of 1 Corinthians, Paul has been addressing a wrong teaching, a false teaching in the church at Corinth, the teaching that there is no resurrection from the dead. Paul has made his argument, and what we see today are the concluding statements of Paul's argument concerning the resurrection, and beginning next week, we will see the nature of the resurrection of the dead, But today Paul closes his argument by essentially returning to what he already said, summarizing what he already said. "If there is no resurrection, there's no point in trying to be the church or in gathering or in doing anything religious, because because you don't profit at all if there is no resurrection from the dead, now, the resurrection of the dead." is our future hope. 1st Corinthians chapter 15 starting in verse 29. After Paul has mentioned the eschaton, said so when Christ returns, the dead will be raised and he will hand the kingdom over to the Father, he concludes his argument. Otherwise, if there is no resurrection, otherwise what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? Why are we also in danger every hour? I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus, our Lord, I die daily. If from human motives I fought with the wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded as you ought, and stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. So there is a place then for speaking to someone's shame. That still qualifies as edifying the church body and the point i think here is similar to the point of a father disciplining his children in a righteous way in a just way that his children feel shame for doing what they ought not do and because they feel shame correct their actions or correct their thoughts and so there's some room for sanctification here here we see that works our deeds our practices especially within the church do matter uh, they do not bring about salvation but they do matter a great deal 1st Corinthians chapter 15 starting in verse 29 and we'll walk through this verse by verse like we normally do otherwise here otherwise referring to the resurrection of the dead Paul has made the claim there is a resurrection the dead will be raised upon Christ's return to the earth And in that moment, the Son, Christ, will hand the kingdom over to the Father. Otherwise, if there is no resurrection, if if we are not going to be raised at the return of Christ, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? Paul makes this. of his conclusion here now i I want you to notice something in the text what paul is not doing here first of all paul is not claiming that anyone can be baptized for the dead he does not condone that practice but neither does he condemn it here okay Uh, that's not his point what i notice about paul especially as he is trained in hellenistic philosophy he is really really good at not chasing rabbits uh, something I think uh, most preachers today could learn from, right? Uh, when we see the words of Scripture, there are no rabbit trails in the letters of the New Testament, what were read as sermons. There is a point to be made, and Paul is fixated on that point and that point alone. He is not addressing here the baptism of the dead. Instead, this, the baptism of the dead, which apparently is a practice in the church at Corinth, Instead, he just uses that as an illustration to point out the incoherence of what the Corinthians are doing. So on one hand, they are teaching that there is no resurrection. And on the other hand, they are baptizing people on behalf of the dead as if there were a resurrection. And Paul's pointing out this inconsistency, this disconnect between theology and practice. And there are many places today where we see a disconnect between theology and practice. And Paul is pointing that out here. He's he's not saying that one can be baptized on behalf of the dead. He's not saying that one cannot be baptized on behalf of the dead. And so we have to reason about that together. It seems to me that if salvation is in Christ alone, then salvation is not in me. Therefore, it is impossible for me to be baptized on behalf of the dead, to put it simply. But that's not what Paul is arguing against or in favor of here. Instead, he's simply pointing out the inconsistency of the religion practiced by those in the church at Corinth. On one hand, teaching. There is no resurrection. On the other hand saying or practicing baptism on behalf of the dead. So this is this is Paul's question. What will those do who are baptized for the dead? But what will they do? Uh, that hasn't actually worked, because you say there is no resurrection, right? That practice is pointless. What are they doing? What will they do? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? Your Theology is disconnected from your practice. You are practicing religion for the sake of religion, and your theology doesn't actually match up. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't profit you whatsoever. He poses another question, rhetorical. Why are we also in danger every hour? What is the way of Christ? What did Christ instruct his disciples to do? In fact, he said, no one can be my disciple. If he does not, deny himself. Take up his cross daily. Follow after me. And What was the way of Christ? The way of Golgotha, the way of the skull, the way of suffering, the way of tribulation the way of being a living sacrifice and then ultimately giving up his life for the sake of his own people and then experiencing resurrection. Like, this is the Christian life. And there are many people who claim to be Christian, but suffering is not their way and tribulation is not their way. And their way is not giving self up for the edification of others, for for the benefit of others. Their way is not being a living sacrifice. Instead, they're still concerned about gaining all the money and stuff and pleasure and recognition and reputation that can on this earth before their time is up. Still, you find Christians with bucket lists, which doesn't make sense if we live forever, right? Still, you find Christians who are more interested in making sure everyone is provided for than with serving Christ and being a living sacrifice, which is why you find that many people who claim to be Christians aren't in the gathering on Sunday morning. They're more interested in personal self-gain rather than the giving up of oneself for the congregation. What are some reasons you hear people don't attend the gathering on Sunday morning? Well, I've been hurt by the church. Who hasn't? Right? Still, that's a selfish reason for not being a part of a healthy local church. Or finding a healthy local church where it doesn't hurt to go, right? I'm more interested in safeguarding our own feelings, having a safety net, than being the people of God. That's where we are in our nation today. We are in a valley, and not on a mountaintop. I think Corinth is in the same place, right? There's this idolatry, idolatry of self. But Christians, sincere, true Christians, live such a life they're in danger every hour, in danger of tribulation, in danger of not being provided for. And brothers and sisters around the world don't have. What we consider to be basic necessities, right? The food and water and clothing and shelter. A true Christian is interested in denying self. A sincere Christian is interested in denying self. Which is why Paul addressed marriage the way that he did earlier in First Corinthians, instructing wives to submit to to husbands, husbands to, to care for their wives. And if you don't have a wife or a, or a husband, you don't have to go seeking one out. Why? Because if you're seeking one out, that involves some level of, of lust, right? And, and God can use that even though that doesn't honor him. He still uses that for his glory and to bring people, people together and to create a, a relationship where, where two people are edifying one another. He does that, right? But if we're in pursuit of a significant other rather than Christ. That's not self-denial, that's selfishness, right? A true Christian is in danger every hour. And Paul makes an affirmation here, I affirm verse 31. I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus. I die daily. This is quite the opposite of the prosperity gospel we hear today, isn't it? The Christian life is a way of tribulation and suffering, then those who preach the prosperity gospel are not Christians. They are not followers of Christ. They are not in the way of tribulation, the tribulation of our own time. The tribulation we experience through this age when Christ is building his kingdom, tribulation of Christians of the church, persecution of the church is one of the evidences that Christ is actually building his kingdom and overtaking the world because why Why do you persecute a nation that doesn't pose a threat to you, right? So as Christ is building his kingdom, we are in danger Every hour. That is the age we are in. We are living through the so called tribulation. Paul affirms that he dies daily. And he brings up another illustration to, to show his point. If from human motives I fought with the wild beasts at Ephesus, wild beasts at Ephesus. Paul is referring to the, the people of Ephesus, not literally wild beasts. He didn't go into Ephesus and somehow get into a Colosseum type thing and wrestle wild beasts. That's not what he's talking about. That would be a literalistic reading of the text. Instead, we want a literal reading of the text. When Paul says beasts, he's referring to a certain type of people. If you go back to Acts chapter 19, you can read about Paul's experience in Ephesus fighting wizards and witches, Right? Taking on those who are given over to the mystic arts and people who are demon possessed. And those who wish to claim the power of God for themselves without submitting to Christ by using some form of mysticism. Paul was kicked out of the synagogue in Ephesus, yet he stayed there and he preached. And when he says fought, he doesn't mean with his fists, but with his words and his reason and his philosophy, and with the exposition of the words of Scripture. He taught Scripture there in someone's household because he was forcibly removed from the synagogue for teaching, for teaching the Bibles that those Jews held so dear. And as a result of his work in Ephesus, a church was planted But there was heavy opposition. If from human motives I fought with the wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? Why would I go through that much suffering? Look, if we preach a sincere gospel, and I can attest to this. I've seen it. I've experienced it. There is no profit in teaching the correct gospel. Not monetarily now when it comes to recognition or or respect for most people, what do we profit by fighting the wild beasts at Ephesus? Well, nothing. all we 're doing is suffering tribulation. so why do we do it? If there is no resurrection, right there's no point in doing that there's no point with wrestling the philosophies of the world. We should just kick back and let everybody believe what they want to believe, and we don't have to say a word because there are no real consequences anyway without a resurrection. If from human motives I fought with the wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? Well It doesn't if you did it from human motives. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. But this brings up another way in which we are in danger every hour. Uh, We do not know when our deaths will approach us. So if there is no resurrection, we might as well give ourselves over to the hedonism of the world. Get all we can while we still have time to get it. Give in to all of our lusts, all of our desires. Drink as much as we want smoke, as much as we want For tomorrow, we die. Knock out that bucket list before you kick the bucket, right? And enjoy yourself as much as you can and gain all you can. Paul there is alluding to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. In Ecclesiastes, Solomon, supposedly the wisest man in history, we're about to learn how he became so wise. He asked God for wisdom. God's way of giving him wisdom was giving him experience. And In Ecclesiastes, Solomon writes about his search for the meaning of life. And look with me in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. And we'll start in verse 1 and we'll read the whole chapter because you really can't grasp what Solomon is writing here unless you read the whole chapter. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Solomon writes, I said to myself, Come now, I will test you with pleasure, so enjoy yourself. And behold, it too was futility, meaningless. I said of laughter, it is madness. It doesn't serve a purpose, it's ridiculous, kind of. Instead of laughter, it is madness and of pleasure. What does it accomplish? Or pleasure accomplishes what? Uh, nothing. Nothing but a, but a momentary sense of satisfaction. But it is, it is like the wind, right? And of pleasure, what does it accomplish? I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine. Uh, how to get he studied how to get drunk before he got drunk do uh, you know anybody who actually does that uh, solomon did right explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely that's interesting and how to take hold of folly until i could see what good there is for the sons of men to do under heaven the few years of their lives All the good that we can accomplish on this earth, our lives are so fleeting here, Solomon says. It almost doesn't amount to anything. And any philanthropist or anyone who does ministry for any number of years will tell you the same. No matter how much they accomplish, it never seems like enough to change the tides. Or because it's not, our lives are too fleeting for that. Solomon continues, I enlarged my works, I built houses for myself, I planted vineyards for myself, I made gardens and parks for myself, and I planted them in all kinds of fruit trees, I made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees, I bought male and female slaves, and I had homeborn slaves, also I possessed flocks, And herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem also I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of men and there he adds a footnote many concubines sex slaves with whom to find pleasure Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart was pleased because of all my labor. And this was my reward for all my labor. I worked hard and I played hard during the course of my life, during my pursuit. Thus, I considered all my activities which my hands had done and the labor which I had exerted and behold, get this, all was vanity, meaningless, and striving after the wind and there was no profit under the sun. So, I turned to consider the wisdom, which was right there the whole time. So I turned to consider wisdom, madness, and folly. For what will the man do who will come after the king, except what has already been done? And I saw that wisdom excels folly, as light excels darkness. And the wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness, and yet I know that one fate befalls them both. And then I said to myself, self, I mean, as is the fate of the fool, it will also befall me. When then have I been extremely wise? So I said to myself, this too is vanity, even wisdom is vanity, because the wise and the fool both perish." Die. For there is no lasting remembrance of the wise man as with the fool. (laughs) The fool is remembered more than the wise man is. Why? Because he was an idiot and more stories were told about him, right? Okay, We we get that. And as much as in the coming days all will be forgotten. And how the wise man and the fool alike die. So I hated life. For the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me, because everything is futility and striving after the wind. Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun, for I must leave it to the man who will come after me. It won't even stay mine. Somebody else will get that. I'm the one who worked hard for that, and somebody else will get it. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. Yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. Wisely, I think in this chapter, meaning shrewdly as a businessman. This too is vanity. Therefore I completely despaired of all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. When there is a man who has labored with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, then he gives his legacy to one who has not labored with them. This too is vanity and a great evil. Sol- Solomon recognizes the injustice here, right? This is, it's evil that I would work so hard for so much, gain it for myself, and that somebody would come along who didn't work for it, and he ultimately gets to enjoy the fruit of my labor. It's evil, it's unjust. For what does a man get in all his labor and in his striving with which he labors under the sun? Because all his days, his task is painful and grievous. Even at night, his mind does not rest. This too is vanity. There is nothing better for a man than to eat And drink and tell himself that his labor is good. Notice Paul later, he added something to Solomon's tape eat eat and drink, tomorrow we die. So we find two versions of eating and drinking one is the hedonism of the world eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. And the other is what Solomon here calls a blessing. There's nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good, to enjoy the fruits of his labor. But he can't do that if all is meaningless and all is vanity. So Solomon continues, this also I have seen, that it is from the hand of God. That it's only possible to really enjoy our labor and to really enjoy the fruits of our labor, if God has given that sort of peace and rest and contentment as a gift. And this is a gift given to the poor and the rich alike, the impoverished and the well-to-do alike. But if we do not have this gift from God, We are always laboring, always trying to get more, and always stressing and always trying to build up and never content, always stressed, always anxious. And at night when we lay down, we're always thinking about what we have to do the next day in order to provide for ourselves or for our families. But if we have the gift of God, according to Solomon, then we find joy in our labor. Instead of living for the weekend, or instead of having a job merely to provide for family, we actually enjoy the work of our hands. We look back on it, and like God did at, at, at creation, looked back at His work, the labor of His hands, and He said, it is good. We also look back on our labor, and we, it is good, and I worked hard, and I honored God. And through my labor, God has given me good gifts to enjoy, not abuse, but enjoy. So we're not workaholics like, like we find in the world. We're also not lazy like we find in the world because we enjoy the work of our hands now. We are in Christ. We have the gift of God. We don't have to abuse things because we're having to take in all we can before we die, right? We, we can enjoy it instead. And the difference I find here is not necessarily a difference in action because I find it interesting that Scripture encourages us to enjoy the good things God has to give. It is a gift of God to eat and to drink and to thank God for the good work that He has given us, right? It's a joy It's given to us as a gift. It's a gift of God. But then also to say we shouldn't have such an attitude that all we do is is eat and drink because, because this is our motivation, tomorrow we die, so consume everything. Right? So it's not necessarily a, a works-based difference here. This is a motivation of the heart. This is something that happens in the heart. It's not just outward action. And the gift of God is a transformation of the of the human heart that leads to that kind of lifestyle, and it is freeing. Our community needs to hear that and the world needs to hear that. Like there is a freedom here if we are in Christ and receive the gift of Christ to enjoy our work and to enjoy the fruits of our labor in a sincere way, not just consuming everything in our paths. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without God? Look at that. For to a person who is good in his sight, He has given wisdom and knowledge and joy while to the sinner, here to mean the one he leaves in his his sin, right? While to the sinner, he has given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give to one who is good in God's sight. This to his vanity, striving after the wind. So if anyone remains in his sin, he is accumulating and building and laboring. Guess what? still for the kingdom of God. You see that in the text right there. And ultimately it is the saints who will inherit that according to Solomon. And so they will find nothing but dissatisfaction with their labor because it will be given to someone else. But to those who are in Christ, the great gift is we will enjoy our labor and it will bear fruit and we will inherit that if we have the gift of God this is the passage Paul alludes to if the dead are not raised let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die they're referring to the vanity of life and if there really is no resurrection you should really just give in to hedonism but if there is a resurrection there is a greater promise an eating and drinking that is not because tomorrow we die, but in eating and drinking because God is good and we love him. Verse 33, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. I have heard this verse quoted many times, mostly by well-meaning Parents who don't want their children to hang out with a certain someone, certain individual. Don't hang out with him. Don't you know bad company corrupts good character, good morals? Right? If that were the correct interpretation of this verse, it would be sorely out of place in 1 Corinthians. But Paul is referring to false teachers here those who are teaching that there is no resurrection specifically. Right? Do not be deceived. Bad company. He's talking to the local church about others within the local church. Bad company in the church. False teachers. They corrupt good morals. And the word morals there is the Greek word ethos. Ethos meaning the habits, the traditions, the mentality, the thoughts, the teachings and the moral compass of a people here to mean the church. And so this isn't about an individual. This is about a people. So if there is false teaching in the church, there is no resurrection. That will corrupt the ethos of the people of God, of the church. This is how churches become corrupt. False teaching invades the walls of of the church in Corinth is false teaching concerning the resurrection of the dead in many places. And at many times the false teaching has been different, but it leads to the same thing, corrupt ethos within the people of God. And this isn't a statement about salvation, but it is a statement about corruption within the church that comes from false teaching. How can we know that teaching is not false? Well, if the prophets of the church are preaching and teaching expositorily, explaining just what the Bible says, and doing it in order, showing the connections in the text, and applying it in a sincere way, that's not false teaching. If we have not exceeded the words of Scripture, we cannot have false teaching, which Paul already stated in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 6 we apply these things figuratively to ourselves so that you might learn not to exceed what is written in scripture. And so i would argue apply this text in such a way as to say if a local church does not have expository preaching and teaching it is much more likely to become corrupt and Christians are susceptible to that sort of corruption, especially especially, if we haven't been exposed to much expository preaching or teaching in our lives. Corruption is not worth staying at a local church, right? We want to be in a local church that practices teaches sound doctrine and practices what is in accordance with sound doctrine. So, for instance, not saying there is no resurrection from the dead, but then also practicing baptism on behalf of the dead. Right? No, we want to teach what is in line with Scripture. We want to practice what is in line with Scripture. And that is how we avoid corruption. Ethos. Verse 34. Become sober-minded as you ought. Sober-minded. Think about this. Don't just run away with every wind of doctrine, right? Be sober-minded. He's not just saying be sober. Like, that isn't the instruction here, though I think Christians probably ought to be sober because if we're not sober, then we can't think clearly, and the instruction in Scripture is keep your wits about you, right? That's why we don't give ourselves over to alcohol or anything that could could dampen our wit. That's why we choose to enjoy things in moderation. Become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning. Here, the sin, the particular sin in view, is false teaching. Teaching that there is no resurrection. And Paul makes that clear. For some have no knowledge of God. So so those who are responsible for teaching this madness that there is no resurrection, Paul just comes out and says it. They don't have knowledge of God. They have no idea what they're talking about. They don't know who God is. They don't know the power of God. I speak this to your shame. You let these men continue to teach you probably booted some guys that were trying to teach the correct thing, right? Trying to be faithful to Scripture. I speak this to your shame. Paul gets very serious when it comes to false teaching. He's more serious about false teaching than, than he is about most other things. I mean, you notice here, he, he doesn't even address the rightness or wrongness about baptism on behalf of the dead. And that seems like a, that seems like a big thing. But when it comes to false Teaching, teaching that there is no resurrection, this is much worse. I speak this to your shame. So the local church ought to be very wary of doctrine that is not found within the text of Scripture, that is not true biblical doctrine. Teaching that is not explicit, teaching that is not expository, we ought to be very wary of that, knowing that it leads to the corruption of the church's ethos. And that to those churches who, who, who are corrupt in their ethos that the Bible, God himself who inspired the Bible speaks to their shame, to their shame. But if a church, I should, I should end on a note of encouragement, shouldn't I? But if a church is striving to be faithful to the text of scripture, denying self in favor of what scripture says, submitting to the teachings of Christ Jesus, what we find in the Bible, if preachers are working hard to exposit the text rather than just come up with something creative, then the Bible does not speak to our shame. Instead, it is a great encouragement for us because that that is what God desires from us. It does not matter if the congregation is large or not. The particular components of our liturgy, there's freedom there and flexibility there. God, God wants us to teach His Word. And where we practice, religion within the local body and liturgy within the local body. He wants that to be in line with what he has taught. What is important here is faithfulness to Christ. Nothing else matters. The faithfulness to Christ and the edification of the body of Christ. So there are two types of people, those who are ashamed today and those who are encouraged today. And I hope we are encouraged. Amen. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.